Welcome to the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. Healthcare is broken, and we aim to fix it one conversation at a time. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good or after midnight, I don't know. Do you weirdos listen to the podcast at 3 a.m.? I'm not sure. Whenever you're listening to it, thank you again for joining. Thank you for listening. You're here with Spencer Smith, the host of Self-Funded with Spencer, for episode 46, featuring Mark Testa of Regenix. Now, Mark actually stuck around with me for a part two, which will cover fasting. But today, for today's episode 46, we are going to cover bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells. Now, that may sound like a mouthful, and it is kind of a mouthful, but I have to be very specific. Bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells. Probably should turn that into a drinking game. If you're listening, every time I say that, or Mark says that, take a shot of whiskey, okay, and get really, really drunk. No, I'm kidding. But we want to be very specific about what we're talking about today. It's not just stem cells. It's the bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells. And why we're talking about it with Mark Testa of Regenix is because there's an application here for self-funded employers where the patients, the members on the plan can use an intermediate step prior to the indication of a surgery. So let's say I've got a back injury. Let's say I've got a knee injury and I'm talking to my physician and it looks like I'm on the path to surgery. What if you could do an intermediate step that would have a fixed cost that has a very high success rate for certain musculoskeletal injuries that might be able to prevent that surgery and prevent being cut open or prevent having something fused or taken out of your body? What if we could take a step in between that final result? And that is what Regenix is focused on. So it could be shoulder injuries. It could be back injuries, some knee injuries. I think a little less so on the hips, what uh, Mark says in this podcast, but It's using this bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells, to intervene with somebody that might have chronic pain, some degeneration, even ACL tears. Crazy thing is if it's got less than a centimeter of a tear on an ACL, the stem cells or the bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells, can actually uh, regrow an ACL ligament. It's crazy. So Mark Testa of Regenix is going to talk today about how self-funded employers can use this Regenix solution to help their members, to help patients on the plan with a shorter step, a less uh, severe step than surgery with a very, very high success rate on certain, again, musculoskeletal injuries. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was very fun. Mark's also a chiropractor. We got really deep in the weeds on a lot of cool stuff. And then, of course... Episode two, part two with Mark Testa, which comes out next week, will be focused specifically on fasting because he and I also went really, really in the weeds on fasting as well. But today, bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells, Mark Testa, Regenex. Enjoy. I bring up the Avid Brothers because our CEO is obsessed. He, you talked about traveling to go see shows. He yeah. will go see them wherever he can. He's done the Red Rocks thing quite a bit. But um, he, you know, he's even willing to go. I think he's probably even seen him overseas and stuff. He's just obsessed uh, with the Avit brothers. And I couldn't get into him. Like, he'll send me songs. And they have one song that's like, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is my daughter's name. Mm. And so I kind of liked it for that reason. But I just, not my jam, man. Just right. not my jam. Just give me some double bass drums and extreme <laughs> guitars, and I'm, I'm happy. Well, so you want to you wanna kick off the podcast, Let's Mark? Might as well do it. So, Mark yeah. Testa, how you doing, sir? Very good, Spencer. I appreciate you traveling in, man. We were just talking a little music. Maybe I'll keep that in the in the intro. I don't know. Uh-huh. You're not a metal guy, which I'll, I'll let you slide on Thank that. You. Thank you. Uh, but how you doing? How you doing this morning? You I'm doing great, man. It's It's been great talking with you. Uh, it's nice and green here in Frisco. And yeah. It's um, 
came so on So first good. time in Frisco, or have you been here before? First time in Frisco. Cool, yeah. man. So what do you think so far? I mean, is it uh, everything well, you hoped for in, in Texas? Or what? <laughs> the weather's awesome yeah. right now. I know that's uh, going to probably change soon. Well, so you're in from Denver. I think we should obviously yeah. talk about yeah. that. Yeah. I appreciate you traveling. We got to have dinner last night. We got to have coffee this morning. Yeah. I think you may have been the guest so far that I've hung out with before the most. So we've essentially already recorded a podcast. I just forgot to hit record yeah. on it. But right. uh, I appreciate you spending so much time with me, letting me know you. Uh, but let's get into you, right? Let's yeah. talk about you. Yeah. Uh, you work for Regenix. What is your title? Are you EVP? Executive uh, Vice President. Okay. So right. you're in the sales. Sales, okay. B2B sales, yeah. Cool. So we'll be talking about, and I want to make sure I get this right, bone marrow concentrate that includes stem cells. Bone marrow concentrate, which includes which, stem cells. That or which? Does that make a which, difference legally? Which includes. Oh, okay. I think maybe grammatically. Maybe grammatically. That's really, <laughs> you're just correct, correcting my grammar. But I know you will be careful about how we position that yeah, and when we you. talk about stem cells. But before we get into the meat of what we're going to do today, let's get to know you, man. We talked a little music, but what's your background, your history, all those right, things? Tell right. me about it. I'm a chiropractor, acupuncturist. Uh, been doing that for 32 years. I know it's, I started when I was like eight. So. You started, that's what I was going to guess. You're right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've had a very awesome career, very different than most chiropractors, working 90% of the time in-house with physicians, primary care, pain management, orthopedic surgeons, and in hospitals. And so I have had a totally different path than most of my colleagues. I got to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of musculoskeletal medicine in the allopathic world. So, um, well, so where did the interest for you for chiropractic medicine come from? That's a great question. My, my parents were first generation Italians born here. So we kind of just took care of ourselves. We, I mean, they were taking vitamins in the seventies. We had a garden. Um, and so we just grew up around this natural medicine, take care of yourselves. And they were general contractors and, you know, originally farmers, celery farmers, celery, celery, um, and, and so great question. My, my parents were first generation Italians born here. So we kind of just took care of ourselves. We, I mean, they were taking vitamins in the seventies. Really? We had a garden. Um, and so we just grew up around this natural medicine, take care of yourselves. And they were general contractors and, you know, originally farmers, celery farmers, celery, okay. celery. Um, and, and so we, we just, took care of ourselves naturally. And, and then I really in ninth grade started working out. I was that 98 pound weekly. Okay. Did you have the, what you send off for the, uh, the book of how to, how to gain weight and how to grow muscle? I, I sent away for the Charles Atlas workout oh, yeah. thing, yeah. right? It was in the back of a magazine and it was free and I got it. Remember things used to take six to eight weeks to get here. Yeah. I, I always tell there my was daughter no Amazon, that. Right? I'm like, Mimi, eight weeks. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it came and, uh, and I started working out and it was all push-ups, and I was like, push-ups. I couldn't do one. Okay. Um, anyway, started getting strong, started working out. Of course you, you know, follow this path of like, where is the origin and insertion of the muscle? How does it work? Had anatomy posters and just had this interest in kind of natural medicine from a young age. Do you think that was that, that inception point for you of the interest of the, of anatomy itself was through that Charles Atlas? Totally. Point? That's very cool, man. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. So did you, did your body respond to it? Did you get bigger? Did you gain muscle and things like that from it or uh, yeah i or did just maybe confidence that i uh, uh, push ups <laughs> now <laughs> it's, it's a little of both yeah. right um and then i yeah then we put a gym in my basement and i mean we'd spend two hours a day working out i'm sure a lot of it was just bsing with the guys but uh yeah 
And so, been, so, okay. So then did you know, did that set you on the path, right? Or was there something you studied in high school or call? I mean, when did you actually get into the study of medicine itself? This so, podcast is brought to you by True Captive Insurance, a premier medical stop loss captive for employer groups ranging from 25 to a thousand employees. True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. That's why they take a white glove approach making it easy for employer groups to transition into a program built specifically for them. Check them out at truecaptive.com. This podcast is sponsored by PlanSight. PlanSight is a technology for employee benefits brokers to more efficiently manage their RFP process for any group size, all funding types, and over 20 benefit lines and point solutions. PlanSight is the only end-to-end RFP technology on the market today. Let's modernize your RFP process together. Check us out at plansite.com. So. so we grew up going to chiropractors. You did? Okay. Yeah, we did. And osteopaths. Our family doc was an osteopath. He took care of like three or four generations of our family. But he did manipulation. And I thought everyone had that. And so I remember looking at that point, you know, maybe obviously towards the end of high school. Should I be a chiropractor? Because we went to chiropractors. Should I be an MD? Um, and I just like the natural aspect of things. And so I made my mind up right away. That was the direction I was going to go into. Is the educational process different? I mean, obviously it is, but like, is it shorter? Is it longer? Is it just different areas of study? Walk me through what it takes to become a chiropractor. So I have an undergrad degree. Then I went to chiropractic school. The basic sciences, the first two years are exactly the same. Basic science, clinical science. We all learn the same stuff, anatomy, physiology, all that. Um, and then our third year, we go in the clinic and start treating patients where the third year, fourth year physicians, they go to the hospital or they start doing rotations in medicine. So that's where we diverge, but it's all the same at the beginning. So, and then you come out, what is the process of coming out of school and then going into practice, right? Are you kind of on your own? Was there a pathway? What do you do? Yeah, you're on your own. We Chiropractors as a profession are uh, outside of the circle of healthcare for most people. And, um, you know, I worked with a chiropractor in Newport Beach. We had a very busy clinic. I became a really good adjuster because our clinic would see 700 people a week. And I'd probably get my hands on 100, 150. And I got good at that. But I didn't really, that didn't fulfill me at all. Um, I wanted more than just that much adjusting. It's very physically draining, mentally draining. Mm -hmm. And so... I was like, I wanted to work with MDs. And in 1990, when I got out of school, we were still called quacks, literally to my now, face. You, we had this conversation over coffee, and I didn't want to kind of go to this backstory because I knew there was somewhat of a perception of chiropractors at times, right, that get labeled as such. So where, what's the origins of being called a quack? Because nobody wants to be called a quack. Obviously, it's not true. But what, some, something triggered that, right? The origin probably started in the 50s uh, or early 60s, where the AMA, the American Medical Association, felt that we were competing on their turf, okay. right? Back then, there were only about 25,000 physicians, and there were about 5,000 chiropractors, and people liked natural medicine. They were getting better from a lot of things, particularly musculoskeletal pain. Okay. And the AMA didn't really like that. They started a committee on quackery in 1962 or 64. Look, they also pushed against Medicare, right? So they're trying to protect revenue, turf, and everything. Well, you say committee on quackery, though. Was that actually the term? That was the term. That was the term, okay. That was the term. And then um, they promoted a lot of propaganda, unscientific, cultish. They even went as far to say to their members, you can't associate with them, chiropractors. You can't take a referral from them. Mm-hmm. You can't do an x-ray for them. Mm-hmm. They, they like shunned us. 
Um, and yet here we are, you know, a hundred, over a hundred years later. Well, was there a, a mindset shift at some point where everybody came around and said, well, uh, either this is propaganda or we don't believe that, you know, it's quackery. What, what happened that said, okay, now this is an established, uh, you know, period or type of medicine, right? So there was a time, um, in the eighties, nineties where, uh, the chiropractic profession sued the AMA and everyone that was in touch with them, yeah. hospital, radiology, physician groups, everyone, for an antitrust lawsuit because they were really trying to, you know, we were licensed in all 50 states, part of Medicare, but they were really trying to, you know, stop our commerce. We eventually won that lawsuit okay. in 1990 or 89, I believe. And that was really an inflection point where it's like, okay, this has been a lot of propaganda. There is science. They go to school. There's lots of research on manipulation. I don't remember the year, but I remember there was more studies on spinal manipulation than there were other treatments for back pain. Okay. And when I lectured to people, I was like, I would talk about manipulation. I was like, let's talk about the procedure, not the profession. Because when you look at the studies on the procedure of manipulation, whether it's an osteopath or a physical therapist doing it, it you know, it makes a difference for people's back pain. But you said you, you were, it was unique that you were actually operating, you know, or partnering with MD. So how, why was that arrangement unique and how did that actually come about in the first place? That was, well, because I was starving. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good motivation, right? For pre-internet. And I was like, where are all the patients? They're over there with the MDs. I got to figure out a way to bring value to them. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. I would go in there and I'd say, you know, you're not doing any of this. Just give me your failures. I want just your failures, your surgery failures, mm -hmm. myofascial pain failures. I will take all your failures. Okay. And they were glad to get rid of them. Yeah. And so I started getting people better because they had never experienced chiropractic. And then I just continued to infiltrate and lecture and, you know, do the things to show that there was evidence and science behind what we were doing. Well, you told me about that. So you did a lot of lecturing early on too, right? Yeah. I mean, so this is this keynote speaking, is this lecturing at colleges? What type of, what environment were you lecturing? So mostly, again, pre-internet, it was to the general public in Boulder, where I was practicing at that time, Boulder, Colorado. And, you know, I talked about everything kind of holistic, how to deal with carpal tunnel, how to deal with back pain, whatever. Uh, and then eventually I started lecturing to physician groups, nurse case managers, city and county employees, self-funded um, employers who were looking for ways to do cost savings. Okay. Um, and then I got really kind of deep into work comp, which what I really liked about that in Colorado is there's state guidelines that are evidence and community-based. Okay. The community part of it I really, really like, because sometimes we do things, but there's not a lot of evidence in the literature, but the community's like, oh yeah, this works. I, I use this. Um, and so that has been my trajectory is working with physicians and we bring a ton of value to each other, a ton, because they don't really learn musculoskeletal medicine. I mean, really the honest ones will tell you that. Well, um, it's, I mean, it's a minimally invasive style of, of medicine as well, right? So it seems like a natural initial thing to try, right? Chiropractic, whether or not it, it helps an individual kind of comes down to uh, you know, a myriad of reasons, but it, it's a minimally invasive step, right? It's not like you go straight to surgery. Right. If you're having a spine issue, let's see if we can get some adjustments or maybe get you in proper alignment, right? Or the geometry of the body and things like that. I, I was going to, I wanted to ask you about though, um, the actual level of effort, right? That the impact to your body doing adjustments for 30 some odd years, right? It's, it's a difficult thing to sustain over time, isn't it? It, it definitely can be. Um, I've definitely had shoulder injuries from adjusting, you know, large people, 
bad mechanics. I mean, you learn how to use your body correctly um, if you're going to stay in it as long as I have. And so, um, but you've scaled back. You're still practicing chiropractic, right? But as you said, a couple of days a week now. A couple half days. A couple half days. Yeah, okay. right. Just because you love doing it still, or what, what's the reason to continue uh, down that path as yeah, well? Yeah, I, I do like getting my hands on people. I do like educating people. I feel like I bring a lot of value to the physicians that I work with. Um, I can help steer people in better directions. I offer other solutions that otherwise they would never have access to. So I still do that. I always, you know, feel like, you know, this is the year I'm going to quit. Yeah. Um, and you never quite get I there. Haven't, yeah. I haven't quite gotten cool. there. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've used chiropractic medicine myself. I was telling you I had a, a neck and kind of, I don't know if it was neck or clavicle, but it was going up and causing some headaches. And even it was oddly enough causing, when I was doing bench pressing a couple times in a, a row over a course of a few weeks, I would get these throbbing headaches and I'm like, ah, that's clearly not good, but I think it's related to the neck. So let's start there and got immediate relief after the first, um, first episode of care, continue to do so to ensure that, you know, this was sustainable, but I was, I've not never been a disbeliever in chiropractic medicine, but that was where I go. Oh, clearly it worked for me. I can't say it works for everybody, but right. in this situation, it was the appropriate step. Right. Um, and I appreciate it also that I could just go to a local chiropractor, get in, be seen, be sort of evaluated and have it addressed uh, immediately too. So that immediacy of relief was uh, obviously a good thing as well. <laughs> but so if it's not sustainable forever, you know, at least you felt you couldn't go five days a week. You said you practiced for 30 or have been practicing still for 32 years. Where do uh, stem cells. Now I won't say that's what you do, but where does the idea of stem cells enter into your life? So, um, you know, I, I, I was at 20, my 20 year point, I was full time. I was seeing like 30 patients a day and that was just grinding me down. And I wanted to make a change, but I wanted to remain in healthcare because that's all I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so I had an opportunity with, uh, Dr. Chris Centeno, the founder of Regenix. We had worked together um, and shared patients for about 20 years prior to me leaving full-time practice. And I knew what he was doing, innovating musculoskeletal care using uh, platelet-rich plasma. And he was the first guy in the United States to use bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells, to inject into an arthritic knee. And so we knew each other. I was watching him. Mm -hmm. I had uh, one of my colleagues who had a torn rotator cuff went to him and got better. Okay. And um, there was an opportunity to start growing our physician network. He was looking for someone. We knew each other. I've always been entrepreneurial and had an opportunity to, to help build uh, our physician network um, 12 years ago. So 12 years ago. And yeah. so sales role, right? When you say, hey, you, it, when you build that physician network, are you going to these physicians and saying, hey, incorporate this as a potential uh, pathway for treatment, or, or what is that building of a network? Yeah, so I would go to conferences, okay. meet physicians. There were a lot of sports medicine guys. I think about some of our early adopters. They were sports medicine doctors, um, not surgeons, um, in-office sports medicine, looking for better things. Like mm. Dr. Centeno, like steroids, they don't work that long. They start to actually cause damage. Burning nerves, opiates, that's not very fulfilling to be mm -hmm. that kind of a doctor. Yeah. So there were doctors at that point knowing that platelet-rich plasma particularly then, and then soon this bone marrow concentrate, we're going to be the wave of musculoskeletal orthopedic care and started meeting them and talking to them and supporting them. And then they, you know, started working with us and we started getting geographical coverage uh, around the country. And now we have about 90 sites around the country. Okay. Well, so uh, you, you mentioned platelet-rich plasma, PRP. Correct. How does that differ from stem cells? So platelet-rich plasma comes from the blood, 
uh, and it has growth factors. Platelets have growth factors, and when you, you know, we can concentrate those growth factors. When you put them into an injured tissue, those growth factors come out, though, and uh, they get the local repair cells to work harder okay. longer okay. in that area. Um, and then bone marrow concentrates probably on a higher spectrum of ability to uh, get the local repair cells to work harder longer. But the cool thing is they're also chemical messengers. So they're calling in other cells, ligament, cartilage, bone, tendon, muscle cells to do the repair job. But they can also turn into your brick and mortar. And so we have published papers on, you know, and, and, and see it visibly on MRI where we can see ACLs reconnect or uh, rotator cuff tears reconnect if they're not shredded or separated real far because the bone marrow concentrate can turn into that tissue. Well, that, that was something you said last night that was astonishing to me. And, you know, and we'll go kind of all over the place in terms of, you know, what stem cells is, the extraction process, the, the bone marrow, which contains stem cells. Um, but that was one of those things as an ex-athlete myself, fortunately never had an ACL tear, but is very, very common in soccer, right. especially. Yeah. So you were saying as long as the ACL is not shredded, meaning it's not completely evaporated or there's other serious ligament injuries to the knee, and that if it wasn't farther than, I think, one C- centimeter correct. apart, yep. so it literally can regrow the attachment. Is right. that correct? Okay, yeah. so how, how does that work, right? So I didn't know this, right? Okay. We were the first ones to ever inject an ACL. No one ever done that because it was always a surgical repair. Um, and it was believed, right, that was the only way to repair that, it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, but apparently there's a sheath around the ligament. And so when you put bone marrow concentrate in there, that sheath just sort of keeps it all in place. Okay. And that's when they can call in these other cells, but start to turn into your brick and mortar. And I think they, what they do is they sense the environment mm-hmm. and they know what to turn into. They don't turn into cancer cells. They don't do any of that. And we've published a safety paper on this and looked at that. And that just doesn't happen. Okay. Um, but they turn into y- you. Um, well, so why do you have any uh, idea why the one centimeter is the threshold in which it, you know, if it's 1.01 centimeters, does it, does it not repair fully or I, do we have any uh, speculation as to why that is? Um, I, I don't, okay. not, not a good one. I would say maybe it's just limitations, right? Of yeah. the science, right? And the science is constantly kind of trial and testing and, and figuring out what works and didn't work right. and, re- and pivoting. I, I use limitations of matter, okay. right? Okay. So matter, who we are, how we are, like if you drop an egg the shell's got a limitation to it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, just a limitation. But you did say that, uh, you know, obviously if you're an athlete and tear is an ACL, this seems like that's be an interesting opportunity. But, you know, there's also, we know how to do ACL surgeries nowadays. There's lots of really good surgeons. Guys come back sometimes seven, eight, nine months and, and come back maybe even better than they were before. So they know that process works. But if I'm an athlete or somebody, maybe I'm just a, a mom or a dad or whatever that have torn my ACL playing basketball on the weekend, like why would you maybe consider this as a, a first step? So it, it, there's a lot of data out there now on the ACL repairs. When they put the graft in, whether it's yours or a cadaver, whether it's a tendon of yours or a cadaver graft, the angle that they put it on in the joint is more steep than the angle of it naturally. Okay. So that automatically starts causing, you know, and anytime you open up a joint, it starts to degenerate. Of course. And so sometimes, you know, the the tunnel that they put that into with the screw gets loose, the biomechanics of that joint change. You know, we see a lot of, as to your point, soccer players, kids, teens, yeah. 
who will go down this route first because their parents do this research and they're like, my kid's going to need a knee replacement in 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, you just can't start doing that at a young age to the body and expect it to continue to last. So, yeah. And did you say the, the, at least again, right. There were still early on in the stages of understanding its application with the ACL, but didn't you say there's a shorter recovery period as well versus right. surgery? Like what does that time frame typically look like? On it's about half, about half back to play versus surgery. So, four months, five months, somewhere right. in that range. Yep. I mean, that's fascinating to me because as somebody, especially even, I've, I've played soccer within the last 20 plus years. Even in my lifetime, an ACL injury was almost uh, often a career ending injury right. for a lot of people. Now it's turned into a common injury that can be overcome with the right in the surgeon again and the right uh, rehab. But think the evolution of this could potentially be where there's a an application of this concentrate, which contains stem cells that could prevent a surgery. I'm going, man, that's almost mind blowing stuff to right. me. And again, we're, we're getting into, you know, that's kind of on the cutting edge of that, but let's talk about more common applications of this, right? As, as we talk about what Regenex does, we're talking about in the employer space. So could you talk to me why this application for what you guys do does apply to employers, especially self-funded employers? Right. So, you know, I mean, it, cost savings, number one, mm -hmm. right? You know, an average orthopedic surgery in the United States, whatever that is, you know, we, I, I factor in cheap, less expensive carpal tunnel and expensive spine surgery is about $28,000. So when you look at our average cost last year in treating someone, and this is all needle-based, okay. and it's in the doctor's office, it was about $6,500. So that's all in for the procedure. There's no anesthesia. There's no facility fee. Mm. People get back to work literally in days, not weeks or months. Okay. And, you know, medication use is less, rehab is less. And so there's this big upside to cost savings, but also keeping people working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think a lot of people are looking at it as innovative benefit. right? Something new to sure, offer sure. that can... And then MSK costs run 12 to 15 percent of the medical spend so musculoskeletal msk yeah. 12 musculoskeletal. to 15 percent right interesting i believe it though man i mean you think about back injuries you think about shoulder injuries neck injuries i mean what else kind of fits in that at least in the workforce would be applicable in msk well really it's it's being a human being workforce yeah, living, or, or right, not yeah, yeah. so um we treat a lot of knees people on their way for a knee replacement or on that spectrum meniscus things like that with knee osteoarthritis. I think the number two thing we treat is lumbar spine. I mean, low okay. back pain uh, is the number one disability as per World Health Organization around the world. Okay. And there's no great treatments for it. I mean, I worked with all the spine docs, steroids, temporary use or benefit, burning nerves. I mean, you know, patients would ask me about that. I was like, it's like your house is on fire and we're going to smash the the smoke alarm <laughs> and expect your pain to go away. Yeah, exactly. So that's not a good one. And certainly spine surgeries, um, you know, are, is really a roll of the dice. It is. Okay. So, uh, well, so know. we're talking about, you know, this, we're on the spectrum of the continuum, I think is the word you used earlier. When we were talking on the continuum. Obviously this is earlier on in the continuum of intervention, right? And relatively low to no downside, uh, but you did say it's investigational, so I want to make sure that we address that. So it is investigational. Why? And what does that mean? Why should somebody maybe not be as scared about that terminology? Right. So that's a term given to us by and, and you know, given to us is in general by the insurance carriers, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna. Um, and to some degree, they have a good point with it. Like, mm -hmm. right, there is no data on stem cells for 
hair growth or erectile dysfunction. And yet there's a lot of people doing this in the cash space. So I see where that comes from. That said, they're not looking at the research, the data, the published literature that goes back into the 90s, the randomized control trials that are now out on all of these things. And there's really not an upside for them, right? There's no facility. There's no, there's no hospitalization. There's none of that. So there's that. Put, but we follow very clear guidelines by what I consider a higher authority, which would be FDA. Okay. FDA has guardrails that says, right, as long as they're your cells, as long as they're going back into you, as long as they're not more than minimally manipulated, and all we do is concentrate them, um, and as long as they're used for the musculoskeletal system, a, a homologous use, then that's allowed. Okay. And so we follow that rule. I think the bukas are just like lagging behind. But we're going to see this change. Um, and I mentioned this last night, uh, TRICARE, mm -hmm. right? The government's military insurance, 9 million covered lives, added PRP for knee osteoarthritis and tennis elbow in 2019. Okay. So they're seeing it as well. And we're going to continue to see it. We've worked with Navy SEALs who are on site God only knows where in the world who are doing these procedures to Navy SEALs. Okay. For the same reasons athletes get it and everyone else wants it. Less invasive, quicker recovery. Quicker recovery, right. So let's talk about the actual extraction and then I guess would you call it an injection is yeah. on the other side. So the extraction and injection process. Walk me through what actually happens to a person. Okay, so let's start with the platelet procedure, all right? That's a blood draw just like any other blood draw. We concentrate those cells, which is important because... You know, we can concentrate it for, you know, the condition, the body part, the severity, um, these things. And that matters because what you need at your age will be different than what I need at my age sure. for maybe an ankle versus a knee. So we can do that. Um, the cells are only out of you for a couple hours in the concentration process. And then they go back to the doctor who injects them with a needle under ultrasound guidance or video x-ray, fluoroscopy. Okay. So we can target the tissue. It's not got to get close. It's like you got to get it exactly in the tissue okay. that's injured. A bone marrow concentration procedure is a, a sort of a three-step process that we use. Um, where we use a farming analogy where we uh, till the soil, plant the seed, and fertilize. So we till the soil on, let's say, a Monday, Monday, where we inject a pro-inflammatory into the area. Okay. Inflammation is the first step of healing. Uh, systemic inflammation is bad, but inflammation is the first step of healing. And so we start that process. Day two, maybe on a Wednesday, we would do a bone marrow extraction. It comes out of the iliac crest. You put your hands on your hip, that's the bone. So yeah, so I want to make sure folks that are listening, right? So we're talking about kind of the side or the back of your, yeah. your hip. Yeah, right? okay. exactly. It was that the iliac crest is kind of at the starting point. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm remembering my anatomy, uh, you know, from my, my study days, but um, so kind of that back, uh, lower portion of your back and hip. So you actually go in, and is a needle going into the bone itself and pulling out marrow? Is that correct? correct? Okay. Yeah. Now that sounds scary. It, but uh, it a little bit. That sounds. A scary. I've done it three times, twice for research. Okay. So I got nothing out of it other than they needed a bone marrow <laughs> <laughs> sample, and and I wouldn't have done it if it was painful. Uh, and I've watched hundreds of these. There, it's like a one to three out of ten pain scale. Okay. We're really good at doing. How that. long does it take to extract it? Um, I think they're maybe in there for on each side. Um five, 10 minutes at the most. Okay. Um, you know, we do a good job of numbing up the whole area. So, so is it just a really a slow draw then? I mean, cause a marrow is 
thick, isn't it? Um, it's got blood cells okay. in it and stuff. So we have a process where we take small amounts from multiple areas. Okay. Um, and then that's how you get the most amount of nucleated cells that, that which contain stem cells to inject back in. So um, small amounts. So they've come out. Now what do we do to manipulate Now we them? concentrate yeah. those, okay. right? Tell me the concentration process. What's that? So it goes into a centrifuge. We concentrate it, take out, you know, any blood or other cells that we don't want. We want to concentrate the nucleated cells, which, you know, there's a lot of different cells in there. Um, and then those cells go right back to the doctor in a syringe and ready to re-inject, again, under the fluoro or the ultrasound into the damaged tissue. Okay. Um, and then the patient goes home, right? So what is the setting? Is this a, what type of facility? Outpatient, Outpatient doctor's setting. clinic. Okay. Doctor's clinic, not so in an ambulatory. Okay. Definitely no hospital, no ambulatory surgery centers, hosp, uh, doctor's office. Okay. They're all fully equipped. Well, and that's a way that we can kind of control costs as well as the setting that it's, it's done. Right. Correct. Okay. So the patient goes home. Then what does recovery look like for them? Well, then they would come back on Friday where we fertilize okay. that now, where we take some of their platelet-rich plasma, inject it in there, and okay. get those cells to continue to work harder and longer. So it's actually two, a, a multi-pronged process. It right? is. So PRP plus the, the yep. concentrate, which contains stem cells. So I'm, I'm literally going to be like a lawyer making sure <laughs> I check the box and say it right. So you get both of those things with the procedure right. itself. Okay, and then so now I've gotten them both. You, that, that is the PRP kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, supercharging the cells right. to do what they do. And yep. then, okay, if I've got, let's pick, uh, what would you say the most common? Knee. Uh, knee. So let's pick a knee. What does that recovery look like for me now? So that's a great question. So you'll have about 24 to 36, maybe 48 hours of stiffness because you're going to get swelling. And that's what those cells are calling more cells in to do. Okay. Start the healing process. So you're going to get swelling. We want it to swell. We don't stop it. Nobody takes non-steroidals afterwards. We manage pain with Tylenol mostly. Okay. Um, so you're stiff. Um, and, you know, there's some discomfort, and everyone experiences it differently. Most people leave with a knee unloader brace. Okay. And they um, just do fine with that. Uh, and then and then you can start weight-bearing. You can start doing your thing really right away. And if it's too sore, you're just doing too much. So you just scale it back a you little bit. You scale it yeah. back a little bit. But literally, like, by the third or fourth day, that swelling goes down, the pain drops off, and some people start feeling some improvement. Now, that's not the case, but we do see, that, that's not always the case, I should say. We do see a fairly rapid and about a 15 to 20% improvement in the first 30 days. Okay. And we track all that. So right, yeah. I'm confident in saying that because I look at the data uh, all the time. It's on our website if people want to see that. Okay. And then what about tempering expectations, right? Because you're not saying we're going to come in and fix every ounce of pain you've ever had and it's obviously got its limitations physiological limitations but what are the expectations what when you consider a successful outcome for a knee what what would you consider to be successful is it pain reduction is it mobility all of the above what are those markers so we track all those pain reduction overall improvement and um function okay so these are self-reported by the patient at time zero, one month, three months, six months, and annually, as long as they'll continue answering that question questionnaire. And those are the three things we look for and track. So yeah, people's function increases, their pain decreases, and they're generally overall happy. Mm -hmm. But so let's let's make sure though we temper to you know the not oversell because I always right. want to be objective uh -huh. in this. You say when you guys are going into uh, the evaluation of a member, there's a kind of a baked in failure expectation for certain procedures as well. So how often does this not? Work? Work. So everyone gets a good, fair, or poor candidacy grading first. And in the self-funded space, if you're a poor candidate, we don't... You don't even 
treatment, no. right? Okay. Surgery is your next step, not us. But if you're a good or fair candidate, we would expect a good result. So knees, very forgiving, do really well. Spine does really, really well when we look at the failure rates. Hips, especially in men over 50, 55 with osteoarthritis, if that's you, we're probably not even going to see you because really? we know from our registry data that that joint just doesn't respond like okay. the knee. Okay. So it is, it's obviously not a panacea for no. everything, right? But so what it, kind of percentages, rough percentages of an understood kind of failure rate, if you will, for those different so parts of the body? So hip maybe 20, 25, okay. Okay. Um, knees uh, 10, spine you know, when I, again, when I look at the data is like single digits, single digit failure rate. Right. right. So, so when you're looking at something and this is not, I'm not trying to position to sell this to people, but it seems like a pretty interesting proposition, right? It's like you understood the failure rate or at least understood the expected failure rate based on the condition, relatively minimally invasive. Right. And then there's the cost element of this, that there is a cost to it, of course, right. but versus the other options, it seems to be a pretty positive uh, option, at least as a stepping stone before surgery. It doesn't suggest perhaps that all surgeries are going to be avoided, but it does suggest perhaps there's an in-between on that continuum to try this before that, right? There is a big opportunity and an in-between step. And so when we look at the randomized control trials now that are out, at least on PRP, because there's a lot of them now, um, it sits at the top of conservative care, meaning that it works better than steroids or synvisc or physical therapy. It is a new opportunity at mm. the highest point of conservative care before you need to cross a chasm to go to surgery. That's interesting. And there was just a great paper out Monday I looked at and um, look, just glanced at PRP versus steroid or uh, synvisc or hyalgin in the knee and PRP outperformed those things. Okay. So those are sort of the incumbents, but now there's a new... It's a new kid on the block. There's right? a new yeah. kid on the block, yeah. exactly. And that's innovation in medicine. Right, and that's that we what, expect. Yeah, that's we we do expect it, right? But there's always going to be some skepticism. There's always going to be sure. some resistance. But I do really want to hammer. We, we talk a lot about self-funding on this podcast. It's called self-funded with Spencer. Um, but employer, right? The application of an employer. Who's the right fit? How do you introduce this into a plan? You know, walk me through the mechanics if you're and you're working through a broker, presumably quite often as well. So walk me through the sales process and the actual application for an employer to potentially benefit from this. Sure. So we do work largely with brokers, right? They are sort of the trusted advisor for the employer. So we educate them. Um, you know, they can look at, you know, uh, analytics and see what the musculoskeletal spend has been and, uh, and try to implement this for a alternative payment, an alternative solution, right? Okay. And so the employers that we work with really are across the spectrum from white collar, uh, insurance agencies yeah. who've added it to their own plan because they see the value in it for themselves, um, to, you know, large firefighter trusts, to manufacturing, um, and across the country, auto dealers. I mean, really, musculoskeletal pain is ubiquitous. And we tend to think it's just people who use their body a lot, but... You know, everybody's got some ache or pain somewhere. Well, you sleep wrong, you sit too long in one position, you know, obviously with our desk jobs, a lot of us, you know, rounded shoulders yeah. and neck pain and postural issues. I mean, obviously the application is very broad. So if I'm an employer today, and do I have to be self-funded to introduce Absolutely this? have to be self-funded. You hear that out there? You have to be self-funded. Self self so I'm a self-funded employer, and I say, this Regenex thing sounds pretty cool. What is the actual execution of adding this to the plan? So uh, because it's considered an investigation, we have a two-sentence 
uh, plan amendment. Okay. Goes in there, stop loss mirrors that amendment. Okay. And then it costs nothing to add to the plan. We don't have a monthly charge at all. Okay. Uh, and so we take the uh, initiative to educate everybody. So we send out benefit cards, information to all members. Uh, I do educational weekly webinars to educate people. We try to drive people to that <laughs> through the education, uh, th through the uh, benefit card. But we also do a lot of targeted outreach with TPAs, yeah. and we get file feeds. And we call, we email, we send postcards. Again, our goal is to let them know they have this benefit, yeah. but then they come and get educated. Come to a webinar and learn about it. Um, a lot of employers, probably half, We'll waive copays and deductibles okay. to incent at least taking a look at this. Right. Um, we had one employer who made it a mandatory step before spine or joint replacements. Oh, really? So uh, you had to do this? Yes. Okay. At least find out if you could avoid those things. Okay. Okay. So then the so the really is this something that could be done even off renewal cycle? I mean, does it as long as the plan amendment exists and then the stop loss mirrors that plan document amendment? You could, could you do it off cycle or does it have to be on renewal? We can do it off cycle. In fact, we do a lot of them off cycle. And so. How yeah. long would that process, if I'm an employer that's doing this, maybe because I want to get in front of a specific uh, instance for an employee and we really want to try it and Sally wants to test it out, how long would it take to get us in position to be prepared to go ahead and do that? So it's interesting. I, uh, we started working with a, a city municipality in Pennsylvania and they said yes and they had members who were slated for spine surgeries mm. and wanted to see if we could intervene. So we did it as soon as they said yes and agreed that like, okay, we don't have everything in place as long as you promise to pay, pay it. We saw that patient like within a week. Okay. I mean, so what is the stop loss to mirror it? Tell me because it's investigational, these aren't going to be spec kits, right? These aren't going to be astronomical claims dollars, but there, is it just so that it's, it's a, absorbed into the aggregate pool of claims? Right. Okay. All right. Cause yes. I'm thinking, you know, I know, I don't know if we want to talk numbers, but it's obviously pales in comparison to most people's spec uh, right. deductibles. So that's just there as a, as in a, you know, uh, understanding that this will apply to the aggregate. Right. Pool. Okay. And our, like I said, our average cost 6,500 last year, top oh, okay. cost, maybe 13,000. Um, for a bone marrow concentrate in the knee. Um, you know, we published the largest safety paper in the world on this, the third of its kind with 3,000 procedures, 2,700 patients. It's safe. We yeah. had four adverse events, 0.17%. Four, so, and what type? I mean, are they severe adverse events or relatively minimal? Most of them are pain and swelling at the okay. at the site. Which is expected right? already. Nobody right. turns into cancer. That was, of course, we looked into that. This is the third paper of its kind. So I remind people that's how science works. When one does it, can someone replicate it? And three now have shown that it's safe. Well, so we talked about the history of the chiropractic care, and there was an inflection point. It sounded the antitrust lawsuit was part of that big inflection point where people understood it to be, it works, right? Or right. at least it's not quackery anymore. Right. Um, are we nearing an, an inflection point, you think, with concentrate, which contains stem cells, that the market comes around and adopts it in mass? Or are we still kind of far away from that point, you think? Uh, it's coming, right? It's definitely coming. Like I said, TRICARE started with PRP. Um, there's a lot of bone marrow concentrate machines that are available now. Okay. Uh, I think it's going to have to be at some point where the, the, the carriers remove that 
it's just baked into the plan at that point as a covered procedure? And I think it, at some point it will be. And it might be five more years. You know, Institutes of Medicine takes said it takes 17 years to go from, you know, science to the clinic. Okay. We're at our 18th year okay. and we're seeing this. So, so it feels we're like, I mean, there. again, anecdotes, right? I know people that themselves have received this type of therapy or maybe slightly different, but still similar with its approach to treatment and have told me anecdotally that it, that it works, right? Um, I'm curious, though, you know, so that we don't get into the quackery, what are some of the things that are sometimes claimed that concentrate that contain or which contain stem cells? People go, oh, it regrows your hair or, you know, does this. And maybe it does, but at least there's not scientific evidence of that. Do you, do you hear some often anecdotal? A ton of it, right? Everything from Parkinson's to Alzheimer's to uh, COVID was a big one to, you know, regrowing meniscuses. Okay. Um, I mean, that just doesn't happen. Okay. You know, when we talk about uh, rotator cuffs and ACLs, that's about the only thing that I'm aware of that will really actually, you know, reconnect itself and not even in every case. So there's been a lot of egregious claims, um, that have, you know, led people astray for sure. And had people spend money that they shouldn't have. Well, and that's unfortunate, man, but everybody's sometimes looking for that magic pill or that magic yeah. injection that'll fix everything. So are there, you know, you mentioned there's particular procedures that aren't appropriate, right? The hip being one that's off and you just say, no, you're a better candidate for surgery. Are there instances with an employer, with the exception of the obvious, fully insured, you're not going to be able to right. put this in motion, but are there instances where it's just not an appropriate fit business-wise or otherwise? Or is it really, you know, it just comes down to the individual situation with a patient determining if that's a fit? I think it's more down to the individual patient. Okay. You know, we only focus on orthopedics. That's only our, that is our lane. That's where all our research is. We don't go outside of that uh, at all. Okay. Um, but for the employer, they just have to be willing to, you know, make these changes. And really it's their, their advisor and consultant that really has to carry this water and be supportive. Um, you know, and not be afraid of that term investigational. I really, once we break it down, there's really no water that it holds. Okay. Um, because we've got everything to cross the T's and dot the I's. And like I said, FDA has given us a very clear pathway. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear it, man. And maybe there'll probably be at some point in my life where I get to test this out on myself. Uh, but before we wrap things up, and for those that are listening, I'm sure on the lead in, I'll, I'll uh, explain this as well, but we're going to do a part two. You and I actually bonded over fasting right. um, and the science of fasting, how it works, you know, somebody that wants to explore it for themselves. I want to go really deep with, the, uh, with that uh, with you on, on episode two. But before we do that, um, the last thing I kind of want to ask you is about the broader future of healthcare, right? You, you seem to be always kind of on the cutting edge of things based on the history that you described in your backstory. So bigger picture outside of just the concentrate, which contains stem cells and PRP and those things, is there a next iteration of this that's on the horizon, you think? Well, for me, um, you know, I bring my experience of an integrated medical experience, right? I think we need in, uh, clinically integrated benefits, okay. clinically integrated networks, because I can't tell you how many times I'm, uh, we're passing each other at night, right? Mm, like, like two ships, ships night, yeah. right? Like, does this plan have an imaging uh, discount? Does this plan have uh, digital PT? I think we need to build a continuum of, at least from my point of view, musculoskeletal care, where you've got primary care as the quarterback. You've got digital PT if people want to do that at home. If that stops working, you've got what we do with needle-based procedures. If that doesn't work, then there's a good surgical center of excellence, um, all connected. But we all need to be part of the same plan mm -hmm. so that we can all communicate. And we need one hub to communicate out of. I think that's going to be the next 
better improvement in healthcare and in costs. Yeah. Right. If we can all communicate and work together and know that you, oh, you do have an imaging uh, benefit that isn't thirty seven hundred. Better, better job of coordinating it to educate and explain to the member, or is it just maybe the broke? You know, who do you envision perhaps quarterbacking the coordination of all these different options for an employer? So maybe a nurse case manager, a care coordinator, somebody who's really got their hands on it, or direct primary care. I mean, direct that's, primary care. Yeah, I mean, primary care where I've worked controlled everything. Nothing ever got out of control. Well, that's the end. I'm a big proponent of direct primary yeah. care myself. Right. I, I, it's one of those things that I'm trying to understand the downsides to it. And I haven't found one yet other than it's, it's sometimes somewhat difficult to scale. I think we were talking about this last night, getting physicians, you know, uh, younger physicians around to the notion that there's another way to actually get paid and to do business or physicians that have been paid by insurance companies for 20 years to shift towards that direction for a higher quality of life and higher quality of care. So I'm a big proponent of that. Is there a potential coordination with that and what you do? Or is it maybe just, Hey, they identify a proper patient then to refer to you or something. I like think that. That's the best, okay. right? They identify them. They've been managing their problem for whatever period of time, and now they need to move to the next step. And I think primary care is the right group to do cool. that. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with me for part one. We got your backstory. We talked about chiropractic care. We talked about Regenix and uh, bone marrow concentrate, which contains stem cells. I'm literally probably going to quote that on the post <laughs> so I don't get it wrong. Uh, but we're going to go get a drink of water, a potty break. appreciate you guys sticking around for the end of part one. And next one we're going to do is part two, and we're going to go deep into the weeds on fasting. So thanks, Mark. Thanks so much. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, likewise. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, True Captive Insurance, a premier medical stop loss captive for groups of 25 to 1,000. True Captive believes in healthcare that is personal and insurance that isn't complicated. Check them out at truecaptive.com.